0: Hey guys, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and everyone that's been sharing the podcast and subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would much appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody that's been sending messages to One at gmail.com or on the Instagram. Uh, you can give us a follow at Kraz plus one on Instagram. And uh, today we have a really, really special guest. Don Was is one of my absolute favorite figures in music. I say that because you can't really pinpoint him as one thing. He's just Don Was. And it's people like that that I really look up to because I've never really wanted to do just one thing. Um, So I can really relate to him Uh, he's a great bassist uh, and musician and arranger but also a great producer an idea guy a vibe guy a lot of people always tell me how Don was he's a vibe guy and I think you'll get a sense of that during this interview talking with him is always enlightening for me he's one of those guys that just drops gems all the time without really even thinking about it and uh, he also just knows how to bring the best out of a situation He knows how to create the right vibe in a rehearsal or in a studio where sometimes people can feel uptight or judged. um, And that's not the best way to get creativity out. You have to be relaxed, you have to be comfortable. And this man really knows how to do that. I've always learned a lot every time I've spoken to him and this interview is no different. So let's get into it. He's an amazing bassist, composer, arranger, label president, and one of the iconic producers of his generation. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. Don Was. Have you been producing remotely and doing sessions and stuff?
1: We finished and mixed uh, a new stone single that's coming out on uh, Friday, Amazing. all by remote. Wow. <laughs> did they track
0: <laughs> stuff separately, too, or was it...
1: Uh, Mick did some overdubs. He, he uh... Yeah. He he uh he did a couple of things too, but it was something that we cut with everyone in the room together in, right, uh, right. about a year ago in LA. And uh it seemed to be kind of timely. Yeah. And so they wanted to finish it. So it was a good test to see if we could get it done. We were able to, you know, get mixes done and
0: uh in, were you doing some of that in real time, like actually listening as yeah, they're making there's,
1: the moves? Zoom, yeah. yeah, it's amazing, right? <laughs> it's mind blowing. <laughs> if they would just, if they could just upgrade the uh, audio a little bit, you could actually like plug the board in and listen on that.
0: Right, right. So I, that's the thing is, I, I'm I'm thinking that right now there's so many people working on that technology. Also, for because so many people want to perform with each other. Yeah. Um, like, I've been involved in these virtual festivals the last couple of weeks, and a lot of it's been pre-recorded, but then some of it, you know, people want to perform together. And I'm like, man, if someone could just sync that up a little better, they'd be killing it right
1: now. Yeah, and no, I I think it's impossible. We re, with Weir, we re, Bobby really tried, you know, and he had, I was talking to vice presidents at Zoom and everything, and it's yeah, just, yeah, you can't do it because... It, the, the internet signal gets relayed so many times, and it's so variable. that There's no way to lock it in.
0: Right, and it's based on
1: people's speed where they are too. So they have to have. Yeah, they have to be plugged yeah. in. Yeah, at least the way the technology is for most people. There might be some higher speed thing, but even then, man, I remember doing stuff. Uh, I can't remember what the system was called, but it was on Ethernet. Right. Where. Right. We I remember doing a live Anita Baker record where she was in New York City, wow. and we had a live band in L.A. And the only way we could do it was the band could play together, but they couldn't hear her, and she could hear the band. Right, right. And uh, we had to wait to, for her to, you know, to for the whole take, and then she sang it, then they, they'd mix it down, and then they'd play it back for us yeah. in New York. But, uh and then send a vocal file, and you just slide it over whatever the delay time was, which was is, is a long time, like 100 milliseconds or something.
0: I right, right. I mean, compared to carrying reels of tape around, which I'm sure you did a lot of that back in the day, and slicing it with, with razors.
1: Oh, man. It's and I, I, quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's just such a huge... You know, there was one... We did a Rolling Stones album called uh, uh, Bridges to Babylon in oh, 1996. Yeah. Yep. And, and the engineer's instructions are that anytime one of the four principals picks up an instrument, you go in to record. Huh? Of course, yeah. So we had, I don't know, we had like $300,000 worth of two inch tape. And there was so much tape that it required a daytime and a separate nighttime tape librarian. And we had wow. to take over a room, at, uh, what was then called, uh, I think it was then Cello at that point in LA.
0: Oh, yeah, I know cello very and well. It,
1: but it was so hard to keep track of that. I mean, you just think of spending $300,000 just on tape. I know, it's insane. It's insane.
0: Yeah, it's insane. And now um, that that hard drive of all that tape could fit in your in your like little tiny pocket of your jeans. It,
1: it really could. I'm sure it wasn't even a terabyte of stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. I mean, I see, you know, I work with a lot of young... And I, I kind of cross over because I caught the tail end of recording on tape in the beginning of mm-hmm. pro tools and i'm an ableton guy now and i've kind of shifted with it but you know i work with a lot of young guys who just do everything on their laptop and it's yeah. it's unbelievable and i explain even when i go back to like adat i'm like oh man that record yeah. i had to do it on adat and <laughs> you know had to do everything in front but there there's something to be said for that for recording and knowing your sound like now people yeah it's production technique tends to be throw a million things at the wall and then sift through, right. whereas, you know, I'm yeah. sure you know that, you know, sometimes he, making sure it sounds right before it goes in um, <laughs> can have yeah, its deci- benefits. decision-making
1: is a big deal. Yeah, one time I, I produced an album uh, for John Mayer yeah. uh, called Born and Raised. I did yeah. two albums on it, but the first one was called Born and Raised, and he felt, he, he wanted it to sound like Laurel Canyon in the 1960s, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. He said, it's got to be taped. I said, yeah, sure, tape's great. So we went into electrically, and we set up, you know, set up tape. And then, uh, and then Chad Franskoviak, you know, his engineer had never, John or Chad had never worked with tape before. Wow, crazy. So Chad did what he normally does. And he's a brilliant engineer, you know. Yeah. And so, it, and he does set up a lot of stuff before you go, before you commit it, you know. So, you right, know, right. Before it goes to tape or, you know pro tools whatever. and uh so he did what he normally does and then uh then it went to tape and when we played it back it was so dark it sounded like someone threw a blanket over over the speakers because chad had been compensating for the lack of warmth in digital and he of figured course. out a really good way to do it. so he, so he had like double warmth right, and <laughs> right. The actually, extra blanket it, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah it was so we went back to digital because he was already doing the stuff yeah but I, I, I think being able to make decisions like that and uh not be terrified of the consequences is uh, it's a really important thing otherwise it just gets away from you. you you never know what you got
0: i mean you listen to the motown records and you know i sometimes think like how can you do better than that you know, and there because the band just knew how to play together. Um,
1: have you been to the studio? I actually never have. I'm sure they got, got a thing there. It's a, it's like a, a six way. Or, yeah, sounds four or six input direct box. Yeah, and all and it, it's got just a volume knobs under each input, but they're, it's all one channel. It's all mono, right? That's and, amazing. And, there, and there's a speaker underneath, and all the guitar players plugged into the one thing. Right. And they right. mixed it on the direct box, and that went into, uh, you know, that's what that, that went into the room and, and got mixed in on the rhythm track for the other things, you know? I mean, some of the... I've heard a lot of the Motown multi-tracks. And, yeah. You know, if you go back to, uh, like, the earliest ones to like three track four track you know they're, they're, it's real basic and it, oh, everything's yeah. just mixed i mean think about the old stuff man think about how great those frank sinatra records oh Capo's unbelievable 50s. and that's all live man. you know yeah. you you mix I, I work with al schmidt a lot yeah uh, love al you know and
0: he's amazing I got to meet him recently. I went to the studio at Capitol. Yeah, he's
1: a, just a beautiful guy, man, oh, yeah. you know, and, and just a, a genius at the thing. Well, the first time I worked with him, he, he we recorded it. I, it was a big group, you know, it was a large, I think it was a big band kind of thing. And uh, I went back in the room and it sounded like a mix. And then he, he, he said, well, give me 20 minutes, I'll mix it. And, that, <laughs> and I looked at the board and uh there was like he wasn't doing anything there was there, like the eqs were out <laughs> right, right. <laughs> most of the things and uh and the the volume levels were all kind of zeroed out so i thought he's what's he doing and i looked under the board i thought maybe he was like stashing a compressor under there like for yeah. no one to see there's nothing but it, I, what i came to realize fairly quickly is that he's mixing when he puts the microphone down in front of the instrument Right, right. (laughs) He doesn't have to EQ because he knows what mic to use and exactly where to put it and which way to face it. So he comes from the days when you had to do that because the whole thing was going to mono.
0: Yeah, the committing. Committing was everything. I heard that that Chuck Berry, when he'd record his solos, someone would be holding the amp in one place, and then they'd have an X, and they'd have to walk up to that X
1: (laughs) and bring the amp closer to the mic and then walk it back. Uh, Well, that that sounds right. (laughs) There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I don't know if you can remember the days of putting, you know, tape, like masking tape, next to every fader and marking off all the spots. And you had to run the mix. It required like three people, four people standing there, and everyone was responsible for four or five faders. And it was it was a it was a work of art to mix. You know, like in real time, right.
0: Now we're mixing on airplanes and trains, yeah, and, yeah. you know. I mean, there is something to be said for um, having that amount of times, but but to to work on things and and dive into details and and whatnot. But also, I think sometimes you're uh, chasing your tail with that.
1: I don't judge it. Yeah. Uh, I I I uh I think everyone's got their own way of doing stuff and uh you, whatever works for you is the it's the record that you come up with in the end it really matters but I think there's a lot to be said for making decisions and sure. and not uh, there's a, certainly a lot to be said for uh, not perfecting everything
0: yeah that's for sure i fall in, i fall into that problem i think sometimes of of spending too much time on things when when the initial ideas is what you need to run with
1: yeah well <laughs> yeah. everybody does it's a yeah. temptation and and if you can it, it used, there used to be so many mitigating factors beyond your control that right. that didn't give you that option just the cost of being in the studio if you're right. paying 175 dollars an hour um you you know you couldn't sit there all night. <laughs> yeah, that's <is> true. <laughs> Mess with stuff, you know. Right. And if if you had to deal with the equipment that was in the room and there were no plugins and you couldn't do infinite things with it, then you wouldn't sit up I used to sit up for you know, I'd go without sleeping for for days and yeah. fall into this kind of plug in abyss. <laughs> so it's it's bad for your health and it's bad for music. You know? oh, yeah. I I hear you.
0: <laughs> I hear you. Um I wanted to ask you a little bit about growing up in Detroit and, and the scene there. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you were you bass? I know you were a singer too, back in the day, right? When you first, in your first well, band. not a
1: good one, you know, Yeah, but, a, uh, you know, was but bass yeah, first I,
0: though? I, was that your first instrument?
1: Well, my first instrument was guitar, you know, okay. and then uh, it was just in, in my high school, there were, there were three guys who were better guitar players than me. There was one guy who was a better keyboard player and there were no bass players. Yeah. So it, it was a function of, uh, creating opportunities to play. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> the, um, I didn't even know what bass was originally. I, I auditioned to be a bass player in the band. just, and I, I just saw McCartney had four strings and I, I didn't know what that was about. So my audition, uh, was, uh, the leader of the band came over and he, he said I said well, uh, I don't have a bass but I'll just play on the lower strings of the guitar we already that's wrong." right <laughs> and he, he said all right let's play walk don't run yeah. so i just played i just didn't play the East, the high e or the b string nice <laughs> I played the chords he said all right that's good you know the chords now play the bass part i said well i am i'm on the the lower four strings yeah so uh, yeah i didn't really know what it was but uh uh, I learned uh and I just I, I think it just suited my personality best.
0: Right, right. And and like how so was that the was that band? Was that your first band?
1: Um, I didn't get the gig. I didn't know how oh, to. Oh, you play. didn't get the gig. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> I was in sixth grade, and they were like, "Oh, in okay, grade. this is all the there's way back in sixth grade." There's a band called the Shy Guys. The Shy Guys. Nice. They I had like a that. they had a number one regional hit single in Michigan. Uh, okay. About a year after that audition, I, I was shooting myself, uh, in the, you know.
0: So did that lead my to hair. getting an actual bass?
1: It led to getting an actual bass. I got okay. a, a famous because uh, Bill Wyman was playing one. Oh, cool! Cool. And uh, yeah, it's just it, yeah. I just, I just I just wanted to play, you know. I did all kinds of gigs, you know. I played. Uh, just uh, I dropped out of college because I knew I wanted to just play music. I was going to University of Michigan, dropped out, and uh, started playing with a jazz trio in Detroit. That was really cool. got four nights a week in clubs, but at the same time, I, I'd play. I remember playing with gypsies. I remember playing uh, – I played in a folk group with a guy named Ted Lucas. Okay. And uh, it was Ted playing acoustic. I played bass. Uh, There's a guy playing kungas and a drummer. And we got booked at the Toledo Sports Arena to open for Black Sabbath. It was like in, in <laughs> wow. 72, That's an interesting pairing. It well, it was a very – it was a bad booking. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think we lasted on stage a minute and a half right. before – uh, the, the drummer was bleeding from getting hit with bottles, you know, and uh, we, had, we had to abandon the set. Got to meet Ozzy,
0: though, so. Wow, crazy. I mean, Detroit had such an incredible scene back then, right? I mean, from rock and roll and jazz scene, and it seemed like you kind of, you were hurtling between those worlds, right, where you getting to see like Barry Harris one night and MC five another night. And
1: that's right. Yeah. Now uh, it's a product of the city. It had to do with, you know, after uh, the auto factories, after world war two, yeah. uh, you know, people came from not just all over the country. There's certainly straight up the highway from the South, but they came from all over the world to, right. to find employment at, uh, at the auto companies. And uh, so they brought their music and the cultures with them. And it was a real, uh, it was a real John stuff, man. There's great blues. I think John Lee Hooker. Uh, to me, John Lee Hooker epitomizes Detroit music. In right. Right. He epitomizes the, the vibe of the city, which is very raw and unpretentious and super soulful. That's what that's what the people are like there. You know. Yeah. Well, when I was a little kid, I don't I don't think I ever. I certainly never saw a Rolls Royce or a Bentley. Uh, But there might have been one limo maybe parked at the airport that picked up people or something. But you you didn't see that shit because there was no point in putting on any airs. Everybody knew that all of us were in the same boat. Everyone's fortunes were tied to the uh, well-being of the big three auto companies. Uh, My parents were both teachers. And if if the auto sales were down, they'd lay off workers who, who would then move away. When the workers moved away, they'd lay off teachers, they'd lay off barbers, they'd lay off waitresses. You know. So everyone, even if you didn't, you didn't have to work on the assembly line to be dependent upon the auto business. Right. right. So that kind of creates a certain environment where, you know, there's really no point in uh, putting on any airs, no point in renting a Mercedes to impress anybody because they all know. You know, they we're all in the same boat. It, yeah. it creates a it, the end result of a very honest population. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and a very soulful population. So the the music was great, but it was raw and without pretension, like John Lee Hooker. The same is yeah. true with rock and roll. When you hear the MC5 or yeah. Mitch Ryder or, uh, or the Stooges, certainly they, they epitomize the thing. There's a lot of sophistication in the jazz musicians that came out of it they all yeah. there were a couple of really great high schools to go to so uh you know, Ron Carter, he's older than me, but he grew up like less than a mile away from where I lived and right right youf Latif and I I mean, know, he so many was my teacher
0: I... in college was Youssef, so I, I learned a lot about really yeah wow got to study wow. with him for four years
1: that's I mean, a that's unbelievable a great experience
0: man. man yeah he was the yeah. greatest
1: but there's some uh, even you know on the blue note roster there's uh there's really an inordinate number joe henderson uh, uh paul chambers uh elvin jones thad jones hank jones yeah the, jo- uh, the
0: jones brothers man
1: yeah that's a heavy yeah. so it was a so you you got exposed to all of that music all the time yeah and it was a really rich environment to grow you know uh the the they were at the time they were called the parliaments it was george clinton oh yeah uh, yeah there was a there were five piece vocal group and they came they played a sock hop at my junior high school and upper gym oak Oak park high school they came with a dj from you know that was a kind of payola then the dj get paid 150 dollars to host the thing and if you wanted your record played on the show you'd come and lip sync your record right right so the parliaments came and lip sync i just want to testify wow crazy and the Stooges played at my high school Damn, uh, they a gig there, you know, so it was, it was everywhere. You know, the music was everywhere. It was, it was really, uh, it was just a wonderful opportunity to get exposed to all kinds of stuff. And how did you
0: end up in a, in a studio? Do you remember like your first time working in a studio and did it, did it kind of spark something in you? Yeah. Well, or,
1: I, you know? I, I was really young and, uh, David was, his real name is David Weiss. His uh, his parents are both voiceover actors. Yeah. So uh, I remember going with them, maybe when we were 12, 13 years old, to a studio called United Sound yeah. in, in Detroit, which is actually where Boogie Chilling was recorded there and, and George Clinton had it locked out through the 70s and did all those great records. And but they just went there to do voiceovers and I I just wigged being in there, man. It just looked like Place I just wanted to spend my whole life there. I was sorry yeah. to go. And in the early 70s, uh, you know, when I was about 20, I uh they, they had they launched a recording school, it's called the Recording Institute of America. <laughs> yeah. Give me a class in engineering, but yeah. it taught everything <clears throat> incorrectly,
2: <laughs> Right, right?
1: <laughs> but it was enough to get you through the doors to understand oh, so all those different those different lines on the mixing console, they're all the same. So if you learn just one of them, you can learn all of them, you know, just right. stuff like that to see yeah. how the thing actually worked. And I, you know, I got bitten. I just <laughs> thought it was the greatest place. And I was able to con a guy named Jack Tan, who was very good to me and really uh, kind of launched me in, in, in Detroit. He had a little eight track studio um, and he needed an engineer. I said, "Well, I'm a graduate of the Recording Institute of America," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he, he let me be the engineer. And that's how that's that's how I got started. But I had no idea what I was doing. There were a couple of engineers in Detroit who were really good, yeah, and they were not talking. <laughs> right. They weren't mentoring, right. and they were they were not going to share their secrets. Uh, and so it was really kind of cool you had to learn on your own to trial and error and i'm i'm really glad about that uh you, you learn to develop a, a methodology to fit the thing you're hearing in your head and and to adapt to the equipment at your disposal right, right. so when we made that first was not was record and i had no idea how you made an album like absolutely no idea like just the process of organizing you know 10 songs and, right and uh, it, it, it took a while I, I didn't know how to mix i had to learn to mix by trial and error on the, in fact i didn't even know that you had to align the heads on the machine i remember going to the mastering session i forgot the guy's name ray ray at the cbs studios uh he was a mastering guy and i walked in he said you got tones or he said, where are the tones? <laughs> I did I didn't know what tones were. Right, right. And I said, What do you mean? He said, you know, the alignment tones. And he I said, Oh, uh, oh man, I left that back at the record company office. And I ran back to the office of Z Records and I got a reel that had Kid Creole and the coconuts uh, <laughs> tones. And right. I said, Yeah, sorry, I forgot to say. <laughs> and so it, it, he aligned the machines to that and i never aligned the machines ever i i thought once they were aligned they were aligned permanently right right so everything was you know it just if you listen to it today man it, it, it the sound of that record it, it'll it'll clear a room at a party if you put it on <laughs> really? uh, but but it, it doesn't sound like anything else which is to me a a good thing the, eventually you lose that innocence yeah and you 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 learn how to do things and I think you start substituting uh things you've already done for uh for being uh for ingenuity and you know coming up with new methods to work around it and then once you start getting budgets once you have money to work with then Yeah, we'll just put strings in there. Let's hire an orchestra. (laughs) And it it was so much better when you were in a room with like a buzz saw, and that was all you had. And you had to tune the the BSO, the machines, for the buzz saw to be in tune. And that was the thing that lifted the bridge. Right, right. Uh, So uh, there's something to be said for not knowing anything. But but I think that's kind of true of anything that happens regionally. You know, Detroit. The, the great music that came out of Detroit was as much a, a product of naivete as it was uh, by design, you know. Right, if if right. you listen to the Motown records, those guys are mostly local jazz musicians who were listening to New York R&B records and trying to do it, and they got it wrong because they they were something different, you know, and they had this... And they had this crazy, wild, genius bass player who was playing yeah. the melody and, and keeping the low end going and being a percussionist all at once. Yeah. And uh, they came up with this, this crazy thing that was, that was way better than the thing they were trying to imitate. Right, right. It's yeah. like the game of Operator. You know, when you, you, people sit around a table and they, they whisper something in each other's ear, by the time it's it back to where it started, the phrase is completely different. Right, that's right. kind of what happens. With, and that's why great music comes from the provinces, whether it's Memphis or Muscle Shoals or Chicago or you know, whatever. It's, it's, you're away yeah, from the, the fashion centers of L.A. and New York, and you get it a little wrong, and that makes it better.
0: And sometimes the environment will influence how it actually sounds. Like I always feel like New Orleans music has like a sweaty, humid vibe. Yeah, swampy. That's true. You know, it, I,
1: I think it does affect your groove. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I I agree completely with that. You know, and yeah. Detroit, like if you listen to, uh, if you listen to MC Five, <laughs> you kind of know. Uh, a little bit about the anxiety of living in Detroit. <laughs> right, right, right.
0: <laughs> Did you did you expect that was not was would produce such a massive hit with Walk the Dinosaur and that album in general? Like, were you guys going for that, or did you just kind of f- fall on that? And then,
1: holy shit! It's you know, it's hard to say. We we knew we were in the record business, right, and, right, of and we, we wanted to have a hit record. Yeah. but that song was a, just this crazy anomaly. The problem was yeah. we, we couldn't follow it up because I don't know how we did it in the first place. You know, it was just a, a thing that we, one song that we wrote that came out a certain way and, uh, it had this little dance that went with it. I mean, that was part of the problem, the thing was having a hit single that doesn't necessarily, uh, Represent the defining ethos of a band can right, be right. disastrous because then you you develop you 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 garner these fans who aren't really into who like the song but they're not really into what you're about, and then you you drive away the, the massive success will drive away the core audience that, that like the quirkiness about you right right and uh, and plus we we just lost our way everyone was after us to to follow up that single. And we couldn't do it. Within a couple of years, we got to a point where, you know, our well-meaning and supportive A&R guy said, you know, if you, uh, just, if you guys would just do a synthesizer-based cover of Listen Like Thieves by NXS, it will yeah. be a smash. Right, right. We, so we did it. We didn't even use the guys in the band or anything, you know. And it, right. we handed it in, and it was like, is this what you want? We'd completely lost our direction. Right, right. Uh, and, by trying to chase the hits, so we asked for it, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then you get it, and then it kills you. Yeah.
0: And what was the evolution like? Were you already producing other artists at that point,
1: or did it kind of was that like a pivot moment for you? Well, after the first wasn't I was album, which is in the early eighties. Yeah. Uh, it, that that album struck a nerve with really? certain kind of musicians in, uh, in the UK. And we, and then, uh, they started making like a pilgrimage to, to, to Detroit. So in the early eighties, I was, uh, producing a lot of records that just came out in the UK, gotcha. but I didn't have any real hits and I, I was getting pretty frustrated. I didn't know what I was doing wrong, you know, but nothing was seeming to, to land right. Uh, and then, uh, actually, through uh, through the great Hal Wilner, who uh, who just recently passed away, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Hal introduced me to Bonnie Raitt. Right. And uh, she came to my house <laughs> in right. 1986, and we we'd had a one was not was or two was not was albums come out. No, no big hits at that point, uh, but she was aware of the band because she was very into what was going on in R and B and stuff. And uh, so she came over to pick up a tape of a demo that I'd done for a song called Baby Mine from Dumbo, which uh, was going on Hal's uh, Walt Disney tribute record. And and he's the one who, who put uh, Bonnie and Was Not Was together. And so she came over to the house and I, I was having a party. Actually, my wife invited all these people over and, uh, there, there are like hundreds of people in this little house in Studio City, and the singers it Was Not Was were leading like soul line dancing in the living room. So she pulled up to pick up this, this cassette, just as this was going on right. in the living room. And it's something <laughs> that, you know… In my entire lifetime, it only happened in my living room for eight minutes, but it was the right eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think she thought that, like, I lived like that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's like, damn, there's a vibe. And, and she said, this is heaven. I love yeah, this. And yeah. so we immediately clicked, and uh, we we did the we did the Disney song, which came out really well, and we started making demos for what was to become Nick of Time. And her managers took me out to eat, and they said, you know uh, – she doesn't have a record deal right now, and if it requires getting hiring a real producer to do this record, we're, we're going to have to, you know, let you go and go with whatever gets her a record deal. We just want you to know that before you start making the demos. Right. So that that stung a little bit, but I, I, it was just worth it because I loved ha I loved Bonnie, loved hanging out with her, and then when we'd make these demos, and she'd sit, she was sitting three feet away from me in the house singing. Yeah. It was. It was mind-blowing, man. She's the greatest singer on earth, you know? Yeah. So so we started doing the demos, and we started shopping them around. And in that period of time, we had a hit with Walk the Dinosaur. So I went from being, uh, you know, a a ball and chain to – Actually, I think record companies thought, well, maybe they'll do "Walk the Dinosaur" with Bonnie Raitt, and we could have a hit single. Which, right, right. of course, we had no intention of doing. But at least I got her signed, and uh, and I did end up producing the record. But that there was a, it was like a two month period. I'm not sure what year it was. I'm guessing it was '86, but it could have been '86. It was probably '87, I think. Where we were in uh, in July, I cut. Uh, half a cosmic thing to be 52's went to woodstock and we cut love shack and that thing and and then the next month we cut nick of time and those two records kind of changed everything
0: i mean those two records for for that year i know i know uh nick of time got uh album of the year didn't it Grammy yeah it was the album of the
1: year won like five grammys <laughs> that night
0: and love shack was it was probably the big one of the biggest songs of that year i remember
1: remember that yeah, yeah yeah no That that's the, it's still the biggest single i ever had I sold like six yeah. or seven million singles or something you know? but and the weird thing is i didn't do anything any differently than right. i was doing on all those records i was making in detroit it was, it's still the same kind of thing but uh you pick up a real advantage when you got someone who can sing like like bonnie or who who has a thing like the b-52s you want to be a good producer, work with great artists that really help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how much, I mean, I think there's also a lot to be said for, um, the, I mean, cause I think obviously you're helping with the crafting of the song and with the sound, but, um, I'm curious, you know, what you would have to, I think this might be something that's just naturally in you, but I, I know from people that I've talked to that you are, a uh, a man that can create the vibe <laughs> and get and get a great uh performance out of someone and in i the room, yeah. I think that that's something that is lost on a lot of people of like what a producer does in those moments and it yeah. you kind of have to have a skill set that's like part psychologist part uh aromatherapist part uh yeah. i mean you have to you have to kind of know the room and know when to. Um, get behind someone's ideas when to, how to crit, how to be critical in a way that's not going to um, hurt feelings and I, yeah. I I don't know if there's much you can put into words there but if you have anything um, that to explain or, or something some way to explain your method um, it's it's, it's not really
1: a method I mean I yeah. I, I think I'm, I have a sense of. I know what intimidates me in the studio makes me self-conscious and Mm -hmm. self-consciousness is the great enemy. You know, I mean, that's, that, that you want to, you want to explode, annihilate self-consciousness and be free to leap off a cliff and knowing that if if you, if you mess up, you're going to land safely and no one's going to, you know, embarrass you or you just want to be comfortable to, go to that extra place and take a chance because that's where all the good stuff exactly yeah. happens um, I mean I, I learned a lot uh, I learned a lot producing Bob Dylan yeah. uh, I, I made some big mistakes with Bob it was, it was my he's my hero you know I mean I, I, to this day I think he's you know the greatest artist around uh, his his writing is beyond belief and I think he's yeah. a great singer you know i mean and he just and everything he represented to me as a, a young man so i finally got my chance to be in the studio with bob in 1989 and the uh, assistant engineer ran a uh ran a dat tape of the entire session or maybe there were cassettes i can't remember now, and but he shouldn't have done <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he did and he's look i got these you can have this and so i was driving home and i just threw one of them in the car you yeah, had to be a cassette because i played it in the car And uh, it was a point where we're standing around a piano, and Bob's showing me something he wanted to do. And actually, he was just telling me about something he wanted to do. And and I interrupted him, and, and I told him why it wouldn't work before we ever even tried it. And when I heard that happening, I thought, man, you waited all your life to be in a room with this guy. And now here the greatest artist ever is telling you what he is aspiring to and you told him why it wouldn't work before you even tried it and i pulled over and i i don't remember if i actually threw up but i remember wanting to throw up right. I, I was so that was a big lesson to yeah. learn yeah about about being open another thing that happened on that record was a, a couple weeks later uh george harrison came in to do an overdub so So Bob was being kind of jocular with him, and he he had the engineer, Ed Churney, get up, and he sat in the engineer's chair. George sat down. He was going to overdub a solo on the song, Under the Red Sky. And uh, (laughs) Bob, Bob never played him the song, didn't even let him tune up. He just went to where the solo was. He said, okay, go. Boom, and he hits it, <laughs> and, and, and George didn't even—he you know—he didn't know what key the thing was in, so he sort of right. stumbles through a solo, and then we get to the end. and Bob says, "That's great, thank you so much."
0: <laughs> and they just gave him one chance. That was it.
1: Well, he was just—he was just joking, you know. Right. But George Harris so they were—I was sitting maybe two or three feet behind them, and they yeah. were next to each other at the board. And George Harrison turns to me and says, so what do you think, Don? Yeah. <laughs> and Bob Dylan, yeah, what do you think, Don? And this is 1989, man. I was just finding my, my sea legs. It would yeah, be intimidating yeah. even now, but that was just, that was too much. What I, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Those two guys what, what, turned around and go, what do
0: you think, man? Yeah, what do you think, Don? Well, time,
1: <laughs> time slowed down and it kind of went into like an echoey kind of thing. And I've, remembered uh, wanting to sell my car so I could get a ticket to the concert for Bangladesh. Right. right, <laughs> okay. right. I was willing to walk for the next year yeah. in order to get to New York to see that thing. And now here they are sitting two feet in front of me. That was right. what I thought. Wow. What, wow. what am I going to say here? So, like I said, time slowed down. It felt like I had a lot of time to make the choice. And what finally dawned on me was that Bob is not paying you to be a fan right now he's yeah he's paying you to produce the record right so but it's George Harrison right huh? so I said I said well no that should you know that was pretty good I, you know why don't you tune up and we'll try another one. we'll see if we can beat it right, right. <laughs> and, and uh George was relieved and Bob liked the fact that I didn't say oh yeah Bob if you like it I, it's great right, right he was testing you a little <laughs> and, bit there but that was a good lesson, you know. That that kind of benign—I don't know if it's quite benign is the word for it—but just gentle honesty, diplomatic honesty is a good way to go. So I, I remember both of those things. Don't don't say that anything's impossible till you try it, and uh, and be nice. You know, treat. Yeah, you know, treat. I've been produced at that yeah. point. i had been produced. I've been in a studio where I was playing on somebody's record and. Uh, I knew that a take was in in the pocket. I knew we had the thing. You could right, just right. tell that it was the thing. And then we finished the take, and there's silence for about 30 seconds. And the producer hits the talk back finally. I don't know what he was doing for 30 seconds, the order in a sandwich or something. He says, uh, Let's try another one. Yeah. And that's just like soul crushing. And, right. and you also know that the guy who's supposed to be running the operation is has no ears <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's just that's that kind of shit just will drive you crazy as if you're an artist in the studio so i always try to be completely attentive never let a long time go by before you press down and talk back in fact i started uh i started sitting in the room i sit in the room with the musicians now so that right. we can talk openly and that i can hear what they're hearing the headphones out right uh We all know it, or whatever people are listening through, you know. Uh, I find that's much better than having a glass wall between you.
0: We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Well, you're a huge Stones fan, and this might yeah. it might be a, a similar story. But um, how did how did you end up hooking up with those guys? And and I know you, you know you you made records with them for
1: for years now. Yeah, no, it's like twenty. Well, I, I know because uh, it's one of my kids was born then, so my kid's twenty six years old. Henry, yeah. my son. So that's that's how uh, that's how long I've been working with him. However old Henry is, yeah.
0: And how did that how did that relationship uh, come together? In, and evolved. Well, Virgin
1: and evolved. Records called me. You know, yeah. they they had just signed them and they felt they needed a producer. Yeah. Uh so I went to uh I went to meet them. They were auditioning bass players to replace Bill Wyman at the time. And they were at SIR, the whole you know, they were just set up as a as a four-piece with different bass players coming in. And there was nobody else in the room, but we a couple of roadies, and that was it. And, uh, I walked in, I I couldn't fucking believe it, man. There's the Stones playing their greatest hits and I'm sitting right there. And I've been a fan. I went to see them for the first time in 1964. They played, uh, they played Olympia stadium in Detroit. There were about 200 people there. They hadn't even been on the Ed Sullivan show yet. It was just like, kind of like another Beatles. So I thought, yeah, great. I'll go. And, uh, you know, had been bought every album the first day, right up until that point. But gone to ever, seen every tour, and now they were playing for me. I couldn't. I, it just blew my mind. Then Mick and Keith come over after they f- they finish auditioning the space player. Who I saw someone who didn't get the gig.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, they sat down on either side of me on a sofa, and they both started talking at the same time, and they did not yield to the other cat. Right. So, so this goes on. I mean, it felt like an eternity, but it was probably two or three minutes. You can imagine what that's like, you know, just to be moving your head like you're at a tennis match and the two people talking at the same time, nonstop. What I could gather from the conversation was Keith was saying, I don't need a fucking producer to tell me how to play the guitar. Yeah. And Mick was trying to say, but perhaps there are some times we could use somebody. Right. <laughs> and, and they both stopped at the same time. And Keith said to me, uh, you sure you want to be the meat in the sandwich? Right, right. And I walked out of there thinking, well, okay, I, I got a Rolling Stone story to tell my grandchildren, but there's no way I got that gig. Right? Yeah. And, and about two weeks later, uh, Keith called me up he said, look, I don't need anyone to tell me how to play the guitar, but, you know, maybe to help set up the situation. He said, I want to use this engineer, Don Smith. And uh, Mick doesn't want to use him because he did my solo records and he wants an objective third party behind the console. Right, right. And, I, and the weird thing is that I had worked with Don Smith a lot. And I thought he was great. And I loved the sound of Keith's, the Wino's solo records. Yeah, I love those It's records what I too. thought the Stone. I thought that's what Voodoo Lounge should sound like. So I called Mika and I said, I really think we should use this guy. I know you think he's Keith's guy, but he's my guy. I've known him longer than Keith. Right. And, and Mick said, all right, if you can make sure he stays subjective, then I'm okay with it. So I called Keith back and I said, all right, got Don Smith. And then he said, all right. See, that's why I need a producer. And he said, your name's not Don Was, it's Don Is. And they, <laughs> and, and they hired me. And that's, and that's how it started.
0: Yeah, I saw that tour with my dad. And then, let's see how many years later, in 2002, uh, my Soul Live opened for, for the Stones on, I think, six or seven dates, which oh. was which because was Charlie was a fan of the band, had our first album.
1: Wow, nice. But, uh yeah.
0: My 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 Stone story is that my, my parents, who divorced when I was eight years old, who hadn't really been in the same room since and, you know, had a horrible divorce and whatever, both, you know, grew. They, I grew up on the Stones from them playing the records. And uh, when we opened for them in Philly, they did a couple small shows. We opened for them at the Tower Theater, which was a tiny place for them. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, we're barely going to really hang out with these guys. Keith's already in our dressing room when we get there, and he's hanging. And, um, <laughs> of course, I realized, I know we'd been on tour, and we flew, in. I was like, oh, have got to go see where my parents are. And uh, I go out during the, during the Stone set, and they're with, you know, they're their two spouses at this point, and this is, you know... Sixteen years after their divorce, and of course they're all hanging out, high and of, of course, the, you know their tickets were together because they were my guests, which I didn't think about until <laughs> I walked out there. And then my tour manager's like, "Oh, they're all in the row." I'm like, "Oh, they're all together! Holy shit!" <laughs> and I'm dreading the moment, and they're like high fiving and singing along, and they've been pretty much oh. cool ever since. So I, I you know, oh. I've, I've told Keith that story a couple times that 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 show changed my whole fi- family dynamic. <laughs> So I, I have I have some to I, I'm thankful to them for that.
1: Yeah, that's that's quite an accomplishment, man.
0: I'm curious how um, the evolution from that to becoming a record guy, a record, as far as working for a label. I know you ended up taking over for Bruce Lundball and yeah, as a president of Blue Note. But before that, had you held any like A and R positions or or oh, worked for a label? No, no, no. Man,
1: I, look, my my main. Uh, goal in life was to never have a job, right? And, and I never considered playing music or making records to be a job. It's, I, I, it's, it's all stuff I would have done for fun for free. Uh, it was a, it, I, I, and I considered record companies to be the enemy of the people, man. You right. know, I, I thought that they're the people who come to your sessions and tell you something shitty to due to your record that ruins it and if by some chance they haven't ruined it and you have a hit they'll steal your money that was my impression of record companies right um so i was in new york i was just doing a john mayer record born and raised and we had one night off john went to play a private gig somewhere that paid for the entire production yeah, <laughs> and, and so I had one night also looked at the Village Voice, and I saw that the singer Gregory Porter was appearing up at a club called Smoke up near yeah, I love Smoke. That was the first first jazz club I ever went to. Yeah, it's a great club. It was a beautiful club, and I, I'd heard Gregory. He'd had one album out, and I heard it on the radio, and I, I was blown away by him. So I thought, great, I, I'd love to hear him in person. So. That on my night off, I went up to smoke, and I stayed for all three sets he played, just drinking coffee, eating ribs. It was wonderful, man. I had just such a great night, and I thought it was one of the best shows I'd seen in at least a decade. You know. The next morning, I was having breakfast with an old buddy of mine named Dan McCarroll. I knew him when he was uh, played drums with Lloyd Cole on the Commotions, yeah. that was Cheryl Crow, and he married – my assistant Jane Oppenheimer oh, okay. who worked with me in the '90s, so I'd i known him for a while. So we were having breakfast, and we actually weren't even talking about music; we were just talking about other stuff. But right at the end, oh, oh, the no, yeah, the left out part. He it's he'd gone from being Cheryl's drummer to uh, to being the president of Capitol Records. Yeah. <laughs> so right at the end, I said, "But does Capitol still own Blue Note Records?" Because if you do, you should sign this guy, Gregory Porter, that I saw last night, and unbeknownst to me, uh, Bruce Lundva, who was someone I always uh, regarded as a heroic figure, yeah. uh, was ill and he was retiring.
2: Yeah.
1: and they they were just looking for for someone who uh, with a vision about how to move the company forward, how to keep the Blue Note ethos. Going for new music as well as catalog, they were looking for that person, and I believe that anyone who came in with an idea that particular morning was going to get offered. <laughs> 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 so Dan like lights up. He says, "You should sign him." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You you, you should come work here. We, you know, we need somebody here." And I was like, "Oh no, not a job, man!" Don't. But but the thing <laughs> is, it was Blue Note. Right, right. And I've been a fan since I was fourteen years old. In nineteen sixty six I bought my first Blue Note record and I loved those records so much. And I loved not just the music but the whole ethos surrounding the company, man. Those black and white photos, the the uh, the Reed Miles album covers. I it just it was that music was as formative to me as the Beatles or Stones or Bob Dylan, or anything, you know. Uh it just so i i couldn't resist. I, w- I walked around for an hour and thought oh no, a fucking job, man. How you how you going to do this? But I I just couldn't resist a chance. I I just pictured myself going into an archive that actually doesn't exist as a room you can go into <laughs> and, and play on all the tapes. You know, you you yeah. actually can't do that. It's very hard to do that. But that's what I thought. I was like, man, I'm going to get every one of those records. I didn't really think it out. I just said yes. Yeah. And I love it, man. I, it, I'm so glad I, I got that uh, opportunity, and uh, I just signed on two days ago, in fact, for another three and a half years. Well, that's so. great.
0: I mean, it's such an incredible legacy there, and and uh, I know I was really happy when I heard that you that you took the job because Bruce was a close friend of of ours and signed yep. us. You know, yep, and sure. Was he was the guy that every time I'd come in, he'd take the time to hang out and play records and, and yep. look at old photos. And he just, he was ex- excited about it as I was, you know, like going through <laughs> yeah. the old records, you know, I, I, when we were signed there, they still were making CDs and some vinyl and stuff. Yep. And yep. so he would always make me leave with a stack of CDs and records and, sh- you know, show me these old pictures of him with like every cat ever. Um, yeah. and he, 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 nah, is, he, he, he was, was one a of a time, guy. man. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He, he is a great man, you know, and he really, he loved music and loved musicians, loved hanging with musicians. Yeah. And that's, that's the most important, uh, attribute you can have. I think if you're, uh, if you're heading a record company is to understand how musicians think and how how their brains work and, uh, and to love the music, to really love the music, uh, that's crucial right yeah he he was he was brilliant he, he was just a beautiful guy and, and he was so nice to me you know there's a lot of skepticism uh when i took the gig because certainly in the jazz community what this guy produces the rolling stones now he's gonna you know he's gonna run a jet, the greatest jazz label ever yeah. you know? and yeah. bruce was a staunch defender and Told everyone, you yeah, know, give him a chance. Give him a chance. I remember, I remember going with him to the Village Vanguard, man. And, and uh, I forgot her name. What's her, what's her name? Uh, Ruth Gordon is that her name? No, yeah, Bruce Gordon. There, yeah there was right, Ruth Gordon. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But she was she was savage to me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> she went out oh, to you. Huh? She, she said, "Like you're the." I mean, she was married to the president of Blue Note Records once, so you know. So right. Uh, uh, she said, uh, she said, uh, "Yeah, are, are you for real or <laughs> And she was relentless, man. She, you know normally people they lay into you, and then they, they embrace you, but she never yeah. embraced you. hug <laughs> <laughs> no, never came. Huh? But she was, uh, that was fairly typical, but Bruce yeah. like said, "No, no no, 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 he's all right. got to give him a shot here, and he's, yeah. he's going to do a great job, and he, he ta- I learned a whole lot from him. Uh, yeah. I wish you were still here. Uh, Me too, man. I, I, Me too.
0: I remember yeah. uh, when we were kind of talking to all the different labels at Soul Live and probably like 99 or something. And we were considering going with Verb, but then we loved Blue Note, and we just loved Bruce. And we played this gig at the Wetlands down in mm-hmm. Tribeca. And it was so live and we were doing a weekly gig where we'd have different bands collaborate with us and DOS effects and black sheep, the hip hop groups were with us that Uh night and the place Uh was rowdy. And I look out in the crowd and we're doing like, Something with Dos Effects, and there's this, hu- you know, everyone's like going crazy, and I see mm-hmm. Bruce at 12:30, you know, <laughs> past midnight, in his white mm-hmm. hair and his beard, like perfectly yep. prim and proper, with his suit yep. on, and he was just Pretty hanging out, suit, waited yeah. all the way till the end, hung out with us, and I was like, I think we need to hang. I think this is our guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I yep. remember just. Uh, but he was always listening to what was happening. You know what I mean? He was yeah. always uh, curious, and uh, yeah, just, just a, a great
1: dude to be around. Yeah, yeah. It, it, very tough shoes to fill, man. That was a, yeah. that's probably been the hardest thing of the
0: gig. You know,
1: was learning how I can't be him. You know, even yeah. that, you know we have the same birthday. Bruce, oh, really? So September thirteenth. So we we took that as a sign. Immediately, somehow we figured that out like the first day. Wow. And, uh, uh, but he's quite a different person than me, you know, and, oh, yeah. and I couldn't be him if, you know, I, I wish I could be, but I, I couldn't be him if I tried. So I, I had to find a way to be myself yeah. and yeah. to still be a record company president. And it, it was a, sh- a steep learning curve, man. I, I, I don't think I really, it's, I think it took, you know, five years to kind of figure out yeah, But remember, man, I had no idea how the thing worked. I was living in L.A., and the company at that time was based in New York. So I'd go into the satellite office. I remember pulling in the first day at Capitol Tower, and you know, I just couldn't believe I had a parking place at at the Capitol Tower. I walked in; they gave me an office, and they they put some a desk with some pencils and a phone and a laptop. Right, right. Uh, it was like the last, did you ever see the movie The Candidate with Robert Redford? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> right, right, right. I, I don't know where to begin, you know. But uh, it took a while, but I, right. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm really comfortable with uh, the way it's running now. It's, and I love, you know, we got a great staff of people working there. It's yeah. small. Yeah, that I'm was sure a big lesson. You guys lesson have to go about. lean
0: and mean now. The rec- industry now is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very yeah, no. Different. You, yeah, no. It's a it, it's a it's a much it's you know much much leaner operation. Yeah. Right, right. But here's what I learned about record companies because I had such a negative uh, association with them, you know. And uh, when I actually got in there, I, I discovered it's mostly young people who just love music and love musicians and will stay till eleven o'clock at night. To help out a musician that they may never have even met, right, right, you know, but they just do it because they love it. They're underpaid and they do the jobs of four people, and that really changed my feeling about record companies. I thought that that's who that's who it really is. Is you know, it, it's the it's the you know, and at Capitol we probably have I don't know, there might be I, I think there's more than a thousand people who work in the Capitol Tower, right. And you get in the elevator, what you see are enthusiastic music fans, young people. And it's really a refreshing environment to be in. And I've done a complete 180 about it. Um, It is possible to be a well-intentioned, honest record
0: company. Yeah. Well, I feel like now also, if you're going to be in the record business, you've got to love it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not like uh, there's tons of excess around it it's it's uh yeah. like you said people are doing four people's jobs they're putting in extra hours they they have yeah. to love what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I have to say I've always um looked up to you for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that you have really carved your own lane in so many different ways um uh, and I think you're probably the first record executive to be in a band with Bob Weir. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'm i'm curious uh about your relationship with the grateful dead music because i we i that's we also cross in that in that world yep. a bit um yeah. as i have played with phil and a lot of those guys um but i thought that was such an interesting combination and i, and I love what you guys are doing and i'm curious
1: how that came about well it was a weird i, I i've known uh i've known bob You know, very casually, like not not like to hang out, but uh, I've known him. I met him in the '90s. Uh, In fact, I found a picture the other day. I think it's another Hal Wilner introduction. There's a picture of Hal and Sid Straw and Bobby and Rob Wasserman. Wow, hanging out in 1993 in Mill Valley.
0: Yeah, Sweetwater, perhaps.
1: News at uh, the what's the theater called? Throckmorton is that a theater there? Might be. It yeah. was some crazy night. I, I yeah. barely remember, man. Everyone was out of their skulls. and yeah. it was, I think it was a tribute to Hal. And oh there God. are all these different music. I remember I played with Garth Hudson and I, I can't... Crazy. It's a blur, but wow. but, that, but Jay Blakesburg took the picture. Oh, yeah. yeah and he sent Jay. it to me. Uh, but So I, I, I met him casually then and then Rob arranged for... Wasserman arranged for us to go out to breakfast and we talked about making a record at one point in the 90s. And then Somehow, I started talking to him again in 2011, and he came to my It was right when I started at Capitol. He, came, he and Mickey came to my office, and they, were, they both had solo things that they, they wanted to, I think, get a record deal for. But the thing that happened was I, I got back into the dead. I'd seen him play in the 60s and stuff, you know. Right. but I, I wasn't like a deadhead by any means. And uh, when I was working with Mayer, yeah. Every time we get in his car, the the serious uh uh Grateful Dead channel was on. And <laughs> yeah, I was stunned yeah. that he could identify like he said, No, nah, that sounds like seventy-seven. Yeah. Yeah. He could tell like by the tempos and by you yeah, know, and and it blew my mind that, that he knew so much about it. And I said, Really like explain the attraction of this. And he but he was like totally into the dead. So he was working downstairs at Capitol Studios, making a record, and, and Mickey and Bobby came to the office. And I said, John, you, you better come up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. And that that led to Dead and Company. Wow! We, so it's your
0: they, fault. It's all your fault. Well,
1: I, <laughs> I played a, a, an intermediary role. I mean, and oh, I went great. when John went up to play with him, I went with him. And uh, wow! And uh, I, I played bass one of the days. Mike Gordon played bass one of the days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up at the uh, TRI spot. Yeah, up at TRI. Yeah, yeah. And, and then. Uh, and so I, I think Bobby was grateful for that. Uh, sure. and, uh, anyway, he had a dream. He called me up whatever year that was, 2017, 2016, whatever year we started yeah. doing it. And just out of nowhere, man. And he said, listen, I had a dream that, uh, Rob Wasserman came to me and he said, the reason I introduced you to Don in the nineties was I, I want him to play bass with you. And when I'm gone, and he said, I, "I dreamt we started a trio with Jay Lane and you and myself, and it was called the Wolf Brothers." He said, "So you want to do it?" <laughs> wow, crazy! <laughs> and I was like, "Fuck yeah, I want to do it!" Uh, and so, uh, so within a month, we we got together and played, and it just it clicked from the first second. But you know, I yeah. love playing with Jay so much, and uh, but it was. It was a daunting experience. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. One of the things I, I wanted most from it was, you know, we talked earlier about self-consciousness being the enemy, the yeah. biggest enemy for any artist. And it's really, it goes beyond art. I think it's in life in general. You want to you live more by instinct and not be so, you know, you don't want to be gripped by fear. And I was really hoping that by playing that would be like playing with Ornette or something right, like that, right. where, you, where just you can't, you have to annihilate fear, and you just have to open up and let whatever pours out of you pour out of you. And I wanted to play with Bobby, not just to become a better musician, but I, I wanted to uh, be a better person. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I could approach this through music, the dead do musically I want to live like that I want this to I want this to permeate every aspect of my being, so that was kind of the experience I was looking for. I wanted to learn fearlessness now I was terrified yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I was mainly terrified because I was not from that milieu you know yeah. and i don't yeah. play anything like phil i don't yeah. i' don't, he's a fucking genius man i don 't know what the fuck he's doing, but yeah. i can 't play like that i yeah. The kind of bass playing I like is like guys like uh, Nweke Atifo, who played with Fela, or uh, or Willie Dixon, or Duck Dunn, or or Michael Henderson playing with Miles, or or David Hood, or or, or like Jimmy Garrison with Coltrane. You know, Um, like guys who just stay in the low end. Yeah, yeah. and. yeah. Uh, and, and and are supportive. Who, who can who can play the same figure over and over? You listen to a Fela record, and Wacky man, he never got off the groove. Man, he just stayed on the same thing. And I love that kind of bass playing. That's that's like whirling dervish stuff, man. That gets super hypnotic. You do that for a while, but it's the antithesis of what Phil was doing. Right, right. So I thought oh, this is like fans are gonna fucking hate this, man. <laughs> <laughs> so i was re- I, the first gig we did uh i was pretty scared about how it would be received but what i started discovering slowly on, on the first tour was that first of all it's the best audience in the in the world the yeah. best audience i've ever been in front of and yeah, it's amazing uh, night after night after night they come there they, they're they really only interested in peace love and community and they're there primarily to be in a room with like-minded people, which in today's society is uh, everything's so fractured. It's, it, you really need that. You really need to, some support from people. Everyone feels like they're in their own little universe, and there's a lot of polarity and hatred. And it's, it's refreshing to be in a room with 2,500 like-minded people. Uh, but they also love the stories. Yeah. they really, uh, that's what I, you know, I, I see what people react to. And it's the same thing every night that, you know, we will get by, we will survive. Right, uh, right. Or even, it doesn't even have to be a dead song. When, we do, when I paint my masterpiece, yeah. it sure has been a long, hard climb. Everyone yeah. goes crazy for that line. And every there's something about that repertoire that really, there's, there's going to be some line in every song that means something really deep to somebody, everyone everyone hangs their own uh, their own emotional emotional life on these songs, so it means something different to everybody. And and Robert Hunter and Barlow and Bobby and and Dylan too. They they yeah. leave enough room; it's, it's poetic enough that uh, everybody can find their own way into these songs. So they come to hear the songs, and they come to hear the stories told. And they love Bobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we give an intimate. Uh, it's really an intimate night with Bob Weir. What it is It's yeah. it's With everything stripped away, and uh, you re- he has a, an opportunity to really tell the stories and 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 dig in deep. Yeah. So knowing that, I thought it, it slowly became clear. And from talking with Bobby, I realized. No, he doesn't want me to play like Phil. I see. He he wants he wants some low end support that doesn't inhibit his phrasing, so he can tell the story. You know, people yeah. talk about the tempos being slow, but the tempos are. I think how he chooses. It's got nothing to do with the groove. It has to do with how he wants to phrase the story. He right, doesn't want to. Right, right. If there's a lot of syllables. He doesn't want to rush through them. He wants to. He wants to deliver the thing. So. Once I knew that, it called for a completely different mindset. It wasn't just about this stream of consciousness, you know, sprawl of, of continuing notes. It was about only playing the essential notes. What, what I've done, I really started doing it on this last tour, that unfortunately we, we were, I thought we were making some artistic headway and we had to curtail it after two weeks because of the virus, but, um, Instead of playing the song or, or the chords, you know, and, or instead of playing the bass, the piece of wood that I'm holding, I I was trying to sing the songs in my right. head. Right, right. And if I was singing, where would I want a note, and where would a note get in the way? I'm trying to play as little as possible, but have the notes means have every note mean something.
0: I think that's really important in that music, and it, that took me a while to figure out. Is knowing the story and letting that mm-hmm. influence what you're playing. I think Jerry's playing is is um, so lyrical, you know, it's and, so and, lyrical. and like yeah. he plays over these forms and chord changes that first off are, are more complex than people realize. I, I I ran into that learning the music, being like, oh, this is going to be easy, and jumping in. It's not easy. And it's also one of those things where you do need to know the story, but you also need to know the melody um, because the the chord changes are in certain cases kind of, you know, cradling these lyrics and these stories and you got to know where that's taking you. I, I spoke to Mayer on the podcast for a while about like the town that exists in Grateful Dead land, <laughs> you know, and like there's <laughs> where there's like all, all the cars are broken down and there's, and, and it's... But it really does. These these songs take you somewhere. You know what I mean. Even just beyond, you know, like you said, the, the power of some of the lines. It's also just it, it takes you to this place, like Brown-eyed Women and, and and other other songs like that. They just, you know, Barlow and and Hunter and all of them just had that ability
1: um, to create this world. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. And. And the other thing, you know, John's done a really good job of it. You gotta find your own way into it. The most ungrateful dead thing you can do is to try to do karaoke Jerry or karaoke Phil. You know, that they were so you such unique individuals. And that's really what it was about. So you gotta find your way to be yourself to play these things. So I to try to apply the kind of bass play that I like, which is that simple staying low and keeping it simple. That's, uh, that's, I, I finally realized that that was the correct spirit of the thing is to be yourself. Yeah. I think O'Teal's done a great job of that too. Yeah. Othiel's amazing. found, found a way to evoke Phil.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and Phil's approach, but, but to also play the way he does, which is to hold down, low end and I, I i love the way he balances that and I, I think both he and john have done really good jobs of that
0: and that's what and they I, want i mean bobby and and phil i know he wants us to take it to a new place and bring yeah. our thing to it you know he he yeah. never wants anyone to you know retread where they've been he's he's he gets so excited and the crazy thing is he likes to change the band up constantly change the set list every night like he could easily have one band and one one uh Set list, you know. Although the fans probably yeah. go crazy for yeah. that, but you know, he wants to challenge himself. He's the first guy at sound check, and he's the last guy to leave. And he wants to go through everything, and yeah, you I'm know, just scared, man. he puts the work in. Those guys, but they also, you know, they want to stretch out and 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 and. You know, find new ground every time they play, which is
1: well. You, you know, with with Wolf Brothers, we we've never played the same show twice. You can't do it; the yeah. fans would go crazy. Yeah, we were, unless it's a we're repeating a historic show or something. Like that. It's yeah. a different. We we we're up to about maybe 130 songs. Yeah, great. But even if we play it... so it maybe every four nights you play a song again, but yeah. it's never in the same order or same set list, right. and we never play it the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 you shift tempos are kind of the, the same, but you know, all it takes is if Jay just changes his bass drum beat a little bit, it's a whole new universe. You got you start over. So we start fresh every time. That's why we sort of build. We, you know, there's a ramp up into the song to like how we're going to handle this one tonight. What's the groove going to be? All right,
2: all right.
1: If you go in trying to play what you played the night before, that's a mistake. It, it's uh, I've learned a lot from it. I actually think it it has uh, impacted how I uh, conduct myself. Yeah, even, even off stage, you know. But I I love playing with Bobby more than it's my favorite thing I've ever done in my life. You know, uh, I, when it started out, I called John up and I said, "Man, how do you stay f- focused for three hours?" Yeah, and uh, he said, "Oh, it flies by," yeah. and I thought, yeah. <laughs> how can three hours fly? I just didn't know how you could be in there for that. You know, I meditate. I meditate for twenty minutes. I don't yeah. But he was right, man. And another call. I called Chikariya, and I said, "If you play for three hours, how do you avoid repeating yourself?" Yeah. Chikariya said. Who cares if you repeat yourself? He said, Charlie Parker repeated himself in every song. That's how you knew it was Charlie Parker. Right, right. He said, just, he said you're, you're thinking of the wrong thing. He said, just play from the heart. Don't worry about whether you repeat yourself. Right, and that right. was kind of liberating. But it just, it just flies by. It's like meditating. I, it, the set starts. You can't take, I can't take my eyes off Bobby because you never know what he's going to do. And you have to pay close attention and uh you never know what sections are going to get stretched out or anything so you have to you have to stay with him the whole time and follow his dynamic if he sings louder you play louder if yeah. he's getting intimate you pull way the fuck back yeah and i just it's it's almost like a trance but it's but it's so much fun uh, i'm always i'm disappointed when we get to the last song because i want to keep going
0: yeah and it's such a I mean, the like you said, the audience, the mood, the mood in the room playing Grateful Dead music for the, their
1: audience is unlike anything else I've experienced. One that really tears me up is um, Ripple. Oh, yeah. We get, we get to do that maybe once every five nights as an encore. And I see the people in the front couple of rows, and there'll always be people who start hugging each other. Yeah. Fuck I- I'm I'm getting choked up telling you about it It, but I I, it just it it makes me cry every night to see uh, how much these songs you know mean to people and and uh, and 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 just what a privilege it is to be able to stand there and be part of bringing them those songs so they can they can feel this well I really hope that uh,
0: (laughs) the tours continue um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, me to, too. And yeah. that we get to do, you get to do more of this. Um, yep. You know, the current state of things, we don't know when things will uh, spark up again. Um, you know,
1: I think it's going to be a while.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling it will be do. too. I know Jazz Fest I, just got
1: canceled for the fall, and uh, yeah, it's stuff that people are moving to the fall. It's, yeah. it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I I honestly think people have to start gearing towards not having big gatherings till summer at 21. Yeah, I don't think till there's a vaccine you're going to be able to have.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe we'll do club shows will happen and hopefully restaurants open and things like that, but
1: big concerts, it's going to be a minute. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty crazy, but it, it it brings people back to making records. I think
0: so many artists I know right now are, you know, in the, in the shed, as we say, um, working things out and writing and, yeah, so, you know, I've been learning a lot of different technology, you know, now that we've been doing these video performances and stuff and yeah. you know, I I've actually hadn't hadn't really been in my studio by myself for more than a couple of days since I moved mm-hmm. to LA, so I've I've been at least digging into some territory that I haven't been in in a while, which has been you know, good oh. creatively, even though I would love to play a show again. Yeah.
1: No, I hear you. I've been writing songs for the first time in 20 years.
0: Great, that's great. Do you play upright mostly when you're writing and when you? Yeah, the kind of
1: stuff I've been doing, it's uh, it's it's upright driven. You know, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of Mingus. Yeah, you know, Uh, the way he he would have these lines that kind of drove everything. Yeah. Uh, He's such a. I, I watched that beneath the underdog. Uh, I love that. I, yeah. yeah, I haven't seen that. You know
0: what? I got to do that. Is that on Netflix or one of those? It's
1: it's on YouTube. You YouTube, okay.
0: Because I back and, in the day I used to watch that on VHS. It, it's that.
1: so great, man. And just watching him, his 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 physical demeanor. He's so relaxed, and yeah. he's not. He's he's playing with. He's he's so powerful, but his. He's not wasting any energy on on unimportant physical activity while he's <laughs> It's all it's, it's all where it's supposed to be, yeah, and yeah. and yet you can tell he's totally. Uh, to- it's not lackadaisical. It's, it's he's totally present in the thing, right?
2: Right. Uh,
1: and uh, I've been trying to I've been trying to stand like him. Right, right, and and let and see what comes out. It's a it's a right. whole different approach. Uh, but I, I haven't seen. I haven't had time to do that in fifteen years. I don't think.
0: You think you'll ever put out a, a Don Was album in the future?
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I think I, I got I, like since the quarantine started. I've written enough things that I could probably do. And I got some some old buddies back in Detroit that I won't play with. So that's uh, great. I look forward to hearing that. So, yeah, thank you, man.
0: Well, man, I really thank you for, uh, taking the time and talking with me, man. I, 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 uh, always enjoy talking with you. And like I said, you're one of my heroes, you know, in terms of how you've kind of paved your own way and, you know, as a producer, as a musician, as a player. Um,
1: so again, uh, thank you for taking the time, man. Well, thank you very much, man. I I really appreciate that, And, uh, um, we should do a tone poet release on your albums. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> do
0: it. Um, all right, man. we well, stay safe and and uh, right. hope your Thank family you. is, is safe and sound during this yeah. time. And I hope.
1: Likewise. So you're you're in L. A. now.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm up, just up the road, North Hollywood. Uh, yeah, I have a really great studio space, man. I've got got this house from a, a film score guy. And it was all built out in the back, and I just kind oh, of shit. jumped on it. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's a, yeah, it's a killer space. I got a live room. I actually flipped it so the live room is now my control room, and then the yeah. control room <laughs> is a because I spend most of my time yeah. in, <laughs> in front of the computer. And But I got all my keyboards wow. and a piano and all my stuff. It's nice, man.
1: about when, uh, when they let us do it, let's get together.
0: Yeah, I would love that. I
1: would love that. Great. All right. Great, uh, all right uh, thanks uh, thank a
0: lot, Thank you Don. very much, man. Take care, man. Of course. Man. bye, See you. bye. I want to thank Don Was for being on the show today. So cool to talk with him and get such amazing stories. I mean, he's just done so much with so many great people, and I really, really look up to him as a producer and as an artist. So to wrap up the show today, I'd like to play a song off of Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time album. Don Was produced this record, and it won Grammys and got huge accolades, and this was a huge hit off of that record called Something to Talk About. krasno plus one is hosted by me eric krasno executive producers are rjb and christina collins audio production by matt dwyer produced by myself and ben baruch of 1111 group all original music is by me and most of which are instrumentals from my album telescope under the artist named kraz this podcast is presented by osiris media if you'd like to get in touch with us email kraz plus one at gmail That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.